not like we're in Quarry House, but like you're in a restaurant and you need to be heard. But you kind of got to project a yeah, little bit. Yeah, just project a little bit just because it's farther away from us. Okay, let's okay. go. All right. So, do you know how the intro goes? It's written uh, down in the script. Yeah. I'm going to read it. Can so, you see the... Word for word. Yeah. So, he'll do so, that. Yeah. I'll do that. You'll do this. And then we're all going to try and do this at the same time. Okay. Oh, hush you. I know that was aimed at me. No, that was aimed at all of us because it was... <laughs> that was aimed... That was, aimed, that was totally so aimed. Bad, that was totally aimed. I mean, no, it can be aimed I'm the at one you who always to be aimed at you. I'm the one who always <laughs> messes this up, Cherokee. You're you'll be fine. And anyway, Emily can fix it in post if all else fails. Can I? Um, <clears throat> I couldn't fix it last time, so I kind of want to like purposely mess it up just to make <laughs> you feel better. <laughs> this is it. All right, we can do this all day. Episode 14 review of Ant Man. Ready, partners? Yeah. Rock and roll, Buckaroo. <laughs> Hi, this is Mark. And this is Emily. And this is Cherokee. And, and we, we can, can do, do this, this all day. day. <laughs> A podcast where we review all the movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We'll go through each film in the MCU chronologically and discuss our overall impressions, things we liked, things we didn't like, and everything in between. We hope you'll tune in and stay with us till the end of the line. And boy, welcome to the show, everybody. Do we have a show for you tonight? We have some firsts here this evening on We Can Do This All Day. Not only are we getting our first, well, it's not our first MCU solo movie review, but it's our first one in a while. We're going to be talking about Ant-Man tonight. But it's also a first because my co-host, both of them actually, are recording from outside the usual geographic area in which we record this podcast. Emily is here with us as always. Hey, Emily. Hey. This is also the and first time we've spent an hour on tech. We had a couple of uh, technical issues, but most importantly, more important than anything else, the biggest thing about this episode, joining us tonight, straight out of Fredericksburg, Cherokee Lopez. Cherokee, Yay! welcome to, welcome to the show. Fingers. <laughs> All right. it, is, <laughs> it is so good to have you with us. You are our first guest host. We're so happy to have and you I here. Feel... We've been looking forward to this for a long time. Oh, man, I feel so honored. Like, I'm for so those... proud of you guys, and I'm like happy to be here. Cherokee, we've known Cherokee for a long time. We definitely mentioned it on the show numerous times the last uh, few episodes. That gorgeous new artwork that we have is all thanks to her we owe that to her it is wonderful never have emily and i been rendered so heroically and so wonderfully so thank you for that cherokee that was a real uh, treat and a real gift no problem i mean gorgeous is a little bit of an overstatement but uh i, I definitely no, it's not. appreciate it we really thank like you it. <laughs> no it's not it is great here we are, the three of us. We're here to talk about Ant-Man tonight, and I'll run the ticker anyway because it just wouldn't be the show without it. We don't have really much MCU news, but we all have seen the first two episodes of Loki, which dropped last week as we were recording this in late June. I don't know about you, but I loved WandaVision. I loved Falcon and the Winter Soldier, but there's something about Loki that is firing on all cylinders right out of the gate. What do you guys think? I'm not going to lie. I feel like that's the general consensus from everybody I've asked. Mm -hmm. Or like anybody who's like just been watching the show, they're like, oh man, I really like WandaVision. I really like Winter Soldier, but oh man, Loki takes it to a whole other level. And I think they're right. Like I really enjoyed WandaVision. I thought it was so creative. I loved every single episode. But, I mean, we're only two episodes in, and I'm so stoked on Loki right I'm now. I'm so excited. I have not been bored for a second 
of Loki. It's so tight. It just kind of goes from one scene to the next. I've talked about this in the movies we've reviewed that I've really liked. It's just really tight. There's no wasted anything in that show, at least so far. It's just been really creative. You go and watch all these videos that nitpick and go through scene by scene. Yeah. And oh my gosh, just to think like every square inch of the screen is being used to like the most of, you know, its possibilities. But on top of that, it's just like this excitement that this is going to be kicking off, what is it, phase four now? Oh, this is, it's, oh. We get, I can barely we get, put into words how excited I am. I love the deconstruction of Loki that we're getting. Cherokee has been involved in one capacity or another in the comics industry for some time now, and as an interest as well as, you know, professionally. And I think if Jack, the King Kirby, could see this, especially like some of those shots of the TVA, it's the most Kirby-esque thing I have ever seen on screen before. It just makes it seem like it can go on forever. Seeing it on page is one thing, and you can imagine it within that page, like in the world of that one panel on how endless this whole city, the society of TVA members are. But then to see it translated on screen, live mm. action, it blows your mind. And yeah. I feel like the MCU's been doing that on all cylinders, from Loki even to Ant-Man. <laughs> I mean, it's like so psychedelic sometimes. Yeah, if we do a Loki uh, redux at some point down the line, maybe we ought to have you back for that. I'd love that. So that's it for MCU news tonight. Uh, on to the main event. We are here to talk about Ant-Man, the final movie in phase two of the MCU which opened on July 27, 2015. The movie stars Paul Rudd, Evangeline Lilly, Corey Stoll, Michael Douglas, Michael Pena, Tip T.I. Harris, David Desmachian, Bobby Cannavale, Judy Greer, Anthony Mackie, and Abby Ryder Fortson. It was directed by Peyton Reed, with a screenplay by Edgar Wright, Joe Cornish, Adam McKay, and Paul Rudd, based on a story by Edgar Wright and Joe Cornish. At the box office, the movie made $519.3 million on a budget of somewhere between $130 and $169.3 million. By any other standard, Ant-Man was a hit, although it is one of the lowest grossing of all the films in the MCU. Out of the 23 films thus far, it sits way down at number 21, just ahead of Captain America the First Avenger and just behind Thor. Ant-Man actually started going into development just barely before Iron Man did, making it one of the first films in the MCU to be imagined. Then writer-director Edgar Wright, who also wrote and directed Baby Driver, which I know is a favorite of Emily's, and Joe Cornish wrote the earliest drafts of the script with Wright set to direct back then. And they got pretty far into production and were actually ready to start shooting in mid-2014 when Wright abruptly departed the project over that most famous of reasons, quote-unquote, creative differences. Adam McKay, writer of a lot of sketch comedy shows and movies starring Will Ferrell, in addition to the highly acclaimed The Big Short, was initially tapped to replace him, although he backed out, citing his friendship with Wright. Peyton Reed, who had directed episodes of Mr. Show, The Upright Citizens Brigade, and the 2000 cheerleader comedy movie Bring It On, which I do like, was ultimately brought in to direct with very little time to get acquainted with the project. Reed later directed Ant-Man and the Wasp and will be directing Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. He recently directed some episodes of The Mandalorian, including that incredible second season finale. So, overall impressions of the film. Both Ant-Man movies have come hot on the heels of mega-budget event films in the MCU. This one followed Age of Ultron, and Ant-Man and the Wasp was released just a couple of months after Infinity War came out. If nothing else, I think having these movies follow those huge blockbusters as 
palate cleansers with much smaller stakes really works to their advantage. Even the most diehard Marvel fans are going to want to break from, you know, end of the world epics every once in a while. And the Ant-Man films serve that purpose quite effectively. It's kind of funny. They are kind of those, like you said, smaller stakes. They cleanse the palate some. But going back and watching these movies now, it's so interesting to see how these small stakes movies are really building up to this larger, like it's setting that foundation. I just think it's funny. Back then, we never would have really thought like we thought it was cool. We're like, oh, what's this going to do? But now that we're like as far along as Loki and WandaVision, we're like, oh, they were doing something. Mm -hmm. It's really fun to go back and watch them. I had a friend who said, just watch. Ant-Man is going to save the world one of these days. He's kind of right. (laughs) Emily, do you have anything to add? I will just out myself now. I had not seen this movie. I had seen pieces because I do remember certain things, but I had not seen the whole movie and I have not seen Ant-Man and the Wasp. So in this week, I have watched Ant-Man once by myself and then Cherokee and I watched it before we started (laughs) recording. And I actually kind of like it. When we get into the rankings, and I guess we could do that now. I'm bumping a bunch of stuff back. So there's a whole set of movies that I don't like that sort of start at number 15 and go up. And they start at 15 because there are movies that I haven't seen. And so I didn't want to put something at the very end when I hadn't seen mm-hmm. all of the movies. Right. So starting at 15, it goes Iron Man 3, Guardians of the Galaxy, Age of Ultron, Thor Dark World, Iron Man 2, and Incredible Hulk all in a row. Got it. And I want to bump everybody back one and put Ant-Man at 14 because I didn't hate it. And I actually have like really negative things to say about those other movies, but I don't have much (laughs) negative to say about this movie. It's just that it's not a big deal to me. Mm-hmm. I see how he fits into the universe and I understand that he's important and like it's good you know I enjoyed it I thought it was funny and it was fun to watch with someone because mm. I hadn't obviously seen it with anybody so it was fun to watch with someone so I don't have any negative feelings towards it which is why I put it ahead of all those other movies that I do kind of have a few negative feelings towards <laughs> one or two I've got it at number nine out of 23 it's kind of just ahead of captain marvel and just behind thor which i still really really like i've always been a fan of ant-man i (laughs) i think his character's just the idea is amazing but again that translation into an on-screen persona i think they did a really great job i'm a sucker for a good comedy movie Mm -hmm. and they did such a great job (laughs) of blending superhero action with just dorky and fun little quips and just great comedy moments i would say for me personally it's definitely top five wow top five for sure top probably five. at like that fifth place back in the day you know about six years ago i might very well have had it in my top five quite possibly so i can certainly see why this list is always changing it's like you know going back and reading a book for like the mm-hmm second or third time you pick up on things yeah so who knows maybe i'll watch one of these other movies and like oh it hits a little different this time maybe i'll Mm -hmm. move this one up but it's always evolving the film opens in 1989 we see the triskelion future headquarters of S.H.I.E.L.D., until it gets reduced to rubble in Captain America the Winter Soldier, being constructed in the Potomac River. Scientist Hank Pym, courtesy of a CGI de-aged Michael Douglas, storms into a meeting between Howard Stark, 
Peggy Carter, and a guy named Mitchell Carson. Apparently, S.H.I.E.L.D. has been attempting to replicate Hank's work behind his back, something called the Pym Particle, and he's not too happy about it. Hank decks Carson when the latter makes a crack about him not being able to protect someone named Janet, and then promptly resigns from S.H.I.E.L.D., vowing to never let anyone get their hands on the formula for the Pym Particle. I thought it was nice to see John Slattery back as Howard Stark, and of course it's always nice to see Haley Atwell back as Peggy Carter. And I do like the de-aging job they did on Michael Douglas. If I didn't know any better, I'd have sworn he just walked off the set of Fatal Attraction or Wall Street. Well, since you guys know that I haven't seen this movie, here we go with the questions. Why would Hank Pym create something that he didn't want anyone to use? At the very least, he should have destroyed all of it, because it sounds like he doesn't have too much control over what was going on in his lab before. And we hear later, it sounds like he doesn't have a whole lot of control on what's going on in his company. From what we've gathered from the movies, I don't feel like he had as much control as we think he does in this initial movie. Because going back and knowing that him and Howard are sharing like a lab facility within <laughs> S.H.I.E.L.D., I don't know if he had like any rights to the Pym Particle. It's like, yeah, you're the guy who developed it, but this is our property now. Well, and I guess Mitchell Carson, we find out, is not a very good guy. Yes. <laughs> so it is likely that maybe Hank really didn't have a whole lot of control because there were some baddies. Hank just strikes me as, you know, he's kind of more of a pure scientist, whereas Howard Stark was smart enough to be a scientist and business mogul. Maybe Hank just doesn't have that. It's entirely possible. You kind of think about, you know, the guys who were working on the Manhattan Project. They were kind of brought in and they were brilliant, but ultimately it was the men in black who were going to be in charge. The man was going to be in charge. Sometimes you can't fight back against that. And as far as like not destroying the particle, this is another thing where we see Hank differing from Howard. Hank went into the field. He didn't just develop some tech suit. That's true. He was out there. So if he wanted to fight somebody in a later time, I wouldn't want to give up my biggest asset just as a fallback. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. Unless you count flying Peggy and, and Steve over the the anti-aircraft in Captain America, the first Avenger. Yeah. I don't think you saw Howard Stark going into the field a whole lot. I, I don't think with all his press suits and and fancy parties i don't think he'd really want to be out in the field too often on, on his way to fondueing yeah <laughs> we flash forward to the present we see convicted cat burglar scott lang being released from san quentin state prison outside of san francisco after three years he's picked up by his former cellmate and crew member luis luis offers to hook him up with some guys to form a new crew but scott realizing he needs to be around for his young daughter cassie refuses insisting on staying straight for her unfortunately He's unable to hold down a job, despite his master's degree in electrical engineering, because nobody wants to hire an ex-con. As much as I love Paul Rudd in this movie, let's just get it out in the open right now. Michael Pena manages to steal every freaking scene he is in. I love him in this movie. We really liked him a lot in this rewatching that we just did. We liked his sharp shirts. Yeah, <laughs> this like lavish shirt. life that he seems to be living when he lives in a dump yeah <laughs> like, he's just a cool guy and it, honestly he's like the most relatable person in this movie yeah like paul rudd again is amazing but i would hang out with louise he's like a guy i would just totally watch tv with or go get some food with like and you see that in all those scenes, he's just a cool guy. I saved some of my Louis stuff for later on. I want to break it out right now, but I'll, I'll save it for yeah, later. Right. He's just great. I also liked that scene in the Baskin Robbins, because I really want to know what that customer was thinking when he walked into that store looking for... <laughs> like a burger. What sounds like football game day food. <laughs> and I brought this up earlier. I love that scene, because whenever I see that customer, and I forget the actor's name, all I can think of is his role in that TV show, Zone 
Dorn. You remember this guy? Yes. And it's really? hilarious. And every single time I see his face and I hear his voice, I'm like, I can't. I can't. I just burst out laughing. So to see him like in this really short, silly, comedic moment, I love it. Not to mention working food service that long, you definitely meet these people. I don't doubt that. I mean, you thought the three of us met some characters working in the bookstore. I can only imagine what it's like working at Baskin Robbins. Food service. Luis introduces Scott to his new crew members anyway, Kurt and Dave, and proceeds to tell them about the Vistacorp job that got Scott sent to San Quentin. He used to work for this company that was overcharging its customers and making millions off of it. Scott blew the whistle on them and got fired. So he hacked into their systems and transferred the money back to the customers from whom it was originally stolen. Luis tries to convince Scott to take a burglary job, but he continues to insist that he is out. Aw, he's like Robin Hood. Cherokee, did you catch the name of the place where Scott and Luis are staying? The Milgram Hotel? Oh, I definitely did. For those wondering why the name of the hotel is important, I wouldn't say it is important. It's cool. It basically serves as a little homage to Al Migram, who was one of the initial writers and creators of the West Coast Adventures, where Ant-Man, Hawkeye, and of course Vision all served as members. He was on Peter Parker Spectacular Spider-Man 2, I think. I believe so. I think for a while. For the listeners, don't be surprised if half of this podcast is just Cherokee and me comic book geeking out, because yeah. <laughs> we haven't talked to each other in a long time, so we're taking advantage of this. So sometimes. We catch up with Hank Pym, whose company, Pym Technologies has been taken over by his former protege, Darren Cross, and his estranged daughter, Hope Van Dyne. We discover that the Pym particle reduces the space between atoms while simultaneously increasing density and strength. Essentially, it can be used to shrink someone down to the size of an insect, yet allow them to maintain the strength they would have at normal size. In fact, I believe it increases their strength. All I can think of is Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Definitely lots of uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids energy going on in this one. Back in the day, Hank used this particle to shrink himself down and perform missions for S.H.I.E.L.D. as the Ant-Man. He buried that secret after his break with S.H.I.E.L.D., but apparently Cross discovered his research and has used it to create his own shrinking suit of armor, the Yellow Jacket, to sell as a weapon. Hank is horrified by this prospect. Fortunately, we also discover that Hope having gained Cross's trust, has been working to undermine him on her father's behalf. She insists that Hank let her use the Ant-Man suit to take down Cross while he's still unable to shrink a live test subject, but Hank refuses to let her do it, insisting that he's found a guy. A short while later, Cross, knowing full well that his shrinking tech hasn't yet been able to work successfully on a live test subject, uses it to turn one of his skeptical board members... Frank into a blob of protoplasm before literally wiping him off the floor and flushing him down the toilet. I always think it's so funny that in all, the majority of these MCU movies, or at least the earlier ones, there's always this like drive to end war and we need to stop all the fighting. But then they only make it worse <laughs> and they just go on to cause even more like destruction and mayhem. You missed the point. <laughs> I mean, Tony Stark. Literally, we just finished Age of Ultron, and one of the things that Ultron picks up is peace in our time, from mm -hmm. to like a quote from Tony. Mm -hmm. And that's Tony's whole goal. And yet, where are we but chaos and war and destruction? It's like in the G.I. Joe comics, that big Cobra banner in one of the early issues, Peace Through War. A little side note here, apparently there was an early draft of the script that Marvel nixed uh, right away, and somewhat understandably, after Frank gets reduced to protoplasm, before Cross flushes him down the toilet. Apparently the original plan, it sounds like it would have been Edgar Wright's idea, Wright was actually going to have Cross like put a bit on his finger and lick it. <laughs> <laughs> and Kevin Feige no. said, no, 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 we are not doing that. 
And I'm kind of glad he did, because <laughs> that's oh, just gross. No. <laughs> I don't think I could have stomached that in theaters. I'm sure we'll talk about this more later on, but let me just go ahead and say, as much as I love this movie, I think Darren Cross is absolutely the worst villain in the entire MCU. Corey Stoll's performance, to me, is just kind of bad. When he puts his hand on Frank's shoulder, that weird Godfather-ish kind of moment, I mean, it's like, can you make it more obvious that this guy's a dead duck? Just sort of the casual evilness with which he kills him. It's like, the laws of nature transcend the laws of man, and I have transcended the laws of nature? Come on. I mean, I suppose this is the part where he twirls his mustache and reveals his sinister plot to take over the world (laughs) and the scene in the restaurant with hope his failures as a mentor and as a father forced us to spread our wings and then he drinks his champagne and he just looks like a total dick it's just so ridiculously slimy and over the top i wouldn't go as far to say i think he's the worst villain in the mcu i feel like he is really telegraphed as stereotypical bad guy. But whenever I watched Ant-Man, I always see like this plot point of corporate greed. And all I can think of is the Monopoly Man. <laughs> and I just <laughs> see Darren Cross as this like evil Monopoly Man. He needs a Damn a you monocle. capitalism. <laughs> I do think he's a really messed up villain. It's really sinister, especially when he's like literally leading a bunch of lambs to the slaughter. That's very true. But that's also another thing I think the movie does really well. It does this great job of showing and not telling. We get such a good feeling of the atmosphere and gravity of each scene and what the characters are doing and kind of what they're meant to do or like meant to convey without them having to like say anything like, oh, I'm Mm -hmm. a bad guy. It's all like the subtext and like little context clues. And he does Mm -hmm. say a lot. I think that might be what makes him bad is that everybody else is doing this show not telling and he is telling on himself. (laughs) She pointed that out earlier earlier it's like yeah out of all the bad like out of well not even bad guys but all the characters in the movie he's the one saying the most he's like speechifying all the time these long soliloquies waxing poetic he's like skeletor and cobra commander are all kind of rolled into one (laughs) yes exactly but we don't get that great skeletor laugh i would actually rather see skeletor scott goes to his daughter cassie's birthday party uninvited cassie is naturally ecstatic to see him not so much his ex-wife maggie or her fiance jim paxton who just happens to be a cop scott hasn't been paying child support so he's persona non grata around cassie until he starts okay scott was jailed for burglary that's not the kind of example you ideally want to set for your kid i get that i'm a parent so i should get that and if you and your spouse are divorced and you have a kid, you got to do your share to help take care of that kid. That said, full in the understanding that we don't know much about the nature of Scott's relationship with Maggie or the circumstances of their divorce, I don't know. I think Maggie's reaction to Scott is a little heartless. I mean, yes, he was in prison. But, you know, as far as we know, Scott hasn't been abusive of Cassie or done anything to actively hurt her or Maggie or anyone else. And there just doesn't seem to be a reason to keep Cassie away from her dad. It's kind of hard to earn an income and pay child support when you're behind bars. Does she know Scott only just lost his job at Baskin Robbins because his manager discovered he was an ex-con? Maggie, to me, just sounds really spiteful, especially since she decided to marry a cop of all people. And by the way, Paul Rudd plays a really great goofy dad. I think he was just kind of born to do that. I definitely agree. My biggest thing with that scene with Maggie is it's not like he went to jail for first degree premeditated murder, cannibalism or anything like that. Yeah. Like he went for hacking. Mm -hmm. He drove a van into a pool. He did a good bad. Yeah. He did a bad thing, but it was like a good bad thing. It was like Robin Hood, like like Emily said. He reversed stole. He did a good bad, like Robin Hood. 
<laughs> what was the line? She's like, how could you marry a cop? Oh, at least he's not a crook. Oh, he's I like hated Robin that line. Hood. I, oh, sorry, I hate that no. line. After the first of the now classic Luis storytelling bits, a desperate Scott agrees to do the job that Luis mentioned to him earlier. Break into the safe of an old guy who's out of town. And so we get our first heist of the film. A night job, of course, replete with preparation montage and all. Kurt jams all cellular activity in the neighborhood, and Luis and Dave hang back in their tricked-out burglar van while Scott breaks into the house. One of those Italianate or stick-type houses typical of San Francisco. He encounters a couple of surprises, such as a fingerprint scanner on a door, and the safe being one of the strongest ever invented, but is able to use his intellect, liquid nitrogen, and some basic household items to MacGyver his way into the safe successfully. When he enters the safe, all he finds is an old motorcycle suit and a weird-looking helmet, both of which he takes with him. Unbeknownst to Scott, he is being observed with a miniature camera mounted on an ant. I don't think I've ever seen a heist movie <laughs> where they don't use the old tape fingerprint trick like it almost makes me want to like not keep tape around my house <laughs> just to throw off any would-be burglar or robber and granted you, you, i don't have anything great to steal or any fingerprint scanners but you gotta hide your scotch tape hide anything to make you know silly putty with i've seen it in a one of the spy shows that i like covert affairs yeah where she uses a listerine strip you remember those oh oh yeah that's a yeah. fun take Ooh. I feel like it would get stuck on my tongue. Like it would just automatically she was really, Yeah, I'm sure. Ooh, do like a Homer Simpson. Ooh. Nom, 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 nom. I'm sure in the real world it wouldn't work, but for the TV show it worked and it now was pretty I want cool. Listerine strips. <laughs> I also absolutely love the setup for this heist where Louise is telling the story, but other people are moving their mouths when it's a thing that they were supposed to have been saying. It's like drunk history, which never fails to make me laugh. It's like a solid game. It's gag. so funny. It's funny every time. It was funny the first time I watched it. It was funny today, especially. Plus his narration. Like, him on screen is funny. Even his narration off screen is funny. He's like so detail. good. detail. And again, it's like... a wine tasting. Who, who would just ramble on like that? At home, Scott plays around with some of the electronics built into the suit and tries it on in the bathroom. He's accidentally shrunk down to the size of an insect and narrowly escapes death a number of times as he's taken on a whirlwind ride through his apartment building. And all the while, he hears the voice of Hank Pym inside the helmet. Once he returns to normal size, he returns the suit to the house in a panic, but is caught by the cops on his way out. And so we get our first big effects sequence of the film, Scott's first shrinking scene. I think it looks incredible. I love the part in the house part downstairs where he's spinning around on the record on the turntable he makes the needle skip when it hits him and how he manages to avoid being stepped on amid all those people dancing in platform heels so somehow i do remember this scene so i'm thinking maybe someone watched the movie near me <laughs> at one point and i happened to be paying attention at that specific moment while the movie was playing either way i think it's fun it was crazy we talked a bunch about why in the world is that bathtub so dirty? It's <laughs> like, please clean your tub. I bet you is, 60% all three, of your all problems could be solved by cleaning your bathtub. Are Dave and Kurt living in that apartment too? Because that would answer. You have three dudes living in an apartment. Up. Three four dudes living in an apartment will do that. Well, four with Scott now, yeah. Four criminals. I guess that also means that they don't know how to clean a bathtub. Uh, Ex-criminals. Ex Ex-con. gag, which will play into Ant-Man and the Wasp. But. I absolutely love this sequence. Prior to, of course, the end game final scene where it's like goosebumps or like Spider-Man far from home when he like taps into his spidey senses and you go through the whole what would that feel like scenario this was like my top 
visual effects sequence. And I think because it goes back to that physical comedy, but mm-hmm. I think it's funny. It's physical comedy, but you don't even see him doing the physical comedy. You just see the record jump or you see the heels and you're like, oh my God. Of course, you have that giant rat monster that... <laughs> With like right. squeak yells yeah. at them. It, like a weird pig noise. Oh, it. yeah. It was weird. Uh-huh. I didn't think that rats squealed, but apparently they do. You have to get that close in order to hear it. And I feel like that would be so terrifying. That has to be such a chaotic two minutes. We got, he got whirled around in a vacuum cleaner. That would scare the living crap out of me. It's like being caught in a hurricane. With a Lego the size of a house. Yeah. <laughs> Tornado with from dust bunnies. Like a thousand feet to being launched on a turnstile trampled chased by a rat and sucked into a tornado that's so much going on in like two or three minutes we talked about honey i shrunk the kids and that movie came out 30 years ago we haven't really seen a a shrinking movie in a long time now that we got the effects technology to really make that work it's it's awesome it would be fun to see some more like smallification (laughs) movies smallification we got our we got our episode title emily smallification let's write that one down ant-man smallification (laughs) (laughs) hank who reveals it was his house and that he allowed louise to learn about the safe briefly visits scott in jail and smuggles the shrunken suit to him using ants who then re-enlarge the suit scott puts on the suit shrinks and then uses hank's instruction to escape but blacks out after falling off the flying ant that carries him to safety he wakes up in hank's house where Hank lays it all out for him. He controls and communicates with ants by using electromagnetic waves to stimulate their olfactory nerve centers. Forty years ago, he created the Pym Particle, which changes the distance between atoms and powers the suit. But he felt it was too dangerous, so he hid it from the world and found Pym Tech in order to start anew. He took on Darren Cross as his protege, but when Cross found out about the Pym Particle and could not convince Hank to let him develop it further, he conspired with Hope to have Hank sacked from his own company. When she realized how close Cross was to cracking the formula for the Pym Particle, Hope went back to her dad. Without the protection of the special helmet, use of the Pym Particle can affect the brain's chemistry. Hank fears this has happened to Cross. Hank promises to help Scott be with his daughter in exchange for his help in stealing and destroying Cross's yellow jacket with the Ant-Man suit. Hope continues to object to this course of action, claiming that it should be her wearing the suit and stealing the yellow jacket, not Scott, the criminal. Meanwhile, Cross finally figures out how to successfully shrink a live subject with his yellow jacket tech. So this is obviously after Winter Soldier, which means that S.H.I.E.L.D. is gone. And also technically Hydra, correct? I think so. When Hank Pym is telling Scott about all the players involved in this whole scheme, he mentions the ex-head of defense of S.H.I.E.L.D., which is... That's what's his... Carson? Uh, that Carson dude, yeah. Who was in that meeting in the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yes. And how he's now out there toppling government. So I assume, obviously, correctly, that he was a Hydra mole. And I have to admit, up to this point, I nearly forgot that this was a Marvel movie. Until Hank Pym mentioned Sokovia and what happened in Age of Ultron. This movie is so outside the universe as we've experienced it so far. Ant-Man hasn't been in a combo movie yet or any other movie. So he's this brand new puzzle piece. And this whole time my brain has been like, we're just watching a silly action movie. But now I'm trying to like put it all together and try and figure out where the piece fits. I did like the Age of Ultron call out his history with the Stark family. It's just kind of dripping in that kind the probably the Avengers probably out dropping more cities. Well, doesn't he say something mean about the Iron Man suit? Yeah, he does. Yeah. This is not some cute little tech like the Iron Man suit. That's my bad yeah. Michael Douglas impersonation. But. It's definitely an outlier kind of film. You do kind of, I don't want to say you forget about it, but in like the grand scheme of all the MCU movies, it's always kind of just been on the peripheral. 
And I think that's why every single time I watch it, I'm like, oh yeah, this is fun. I like this. <laughs> I forget about it in the same way that I forget about Guardians, though. I think because they came to the game so late. Yeah. Well, they're definitely like that stepping stone kind of movie. Again, they're laying that foundation for something else. So I feel like they're definitely going to be used later on. I'm excited to see how they're going to be used. Of course, back then when the movie came out, I was like, all right, this is just another little blip into the next Avengers movie. And now we get the training montage. I love training montages, by the way. A lot of information is conveyed to the viewer over the course of many quick cuts. Hank teaches Scott how to use the suit. Hope provides him instruction on hand-to-hand -hand combat. He makes observable gains in both of these areas over time. Hank provides Scott with some pin particle-powered weapons, little discs that he can throw at objects. Red ones shrink their target, while the blue ones enlarge their targets. Well, now all I can think of is the PC game Portal. Which I've never yeah. played. Do you mind explaining that to me real well, quick? Well, Portal is actually very different from this, but Portal is where you have a gun and it has orange and blue, and blue creates the first portal, and orange, when you shoot the orange, orange is where you come out. So if you go in the blue, you'll come out of the orange. Gotcha. Like, this isn't teleporting and it's not like moving from one place to another but it has that same feel of like it's like moving the appear particles around. and disappear yeah. and so in the game the whole point is to you want to get through these rooms and so you shoot the blue portal and then you shoot the yellow portal and you walk through out the other side so you don't fall in the slime or whatever it is but gotcha or no. sometimes you can just fall forever if you shoot a blue up at top and a oh, yeah, just yellow down here you can just keep falling forever i've been but falling I mean, like they... for 30 minutes uh-huh pretty much when we say when you say that though it kind of does feel like Ant-Man. I mean, how many times do we see him jumping through a little keyhole? Right. Literally yeah. jumping through a door or literally falling forever. And then he gets big like a second later. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's okay. I can see a lot of parallels now. Yeah. I also didn't realize this until today when we watched it, that these technically aren't weapons, I would say. But there are no weapons on the suit, on the Ant-Man suit. Right. No. This yeah, is the closest thing we get to a weapon is these discs. Yeah, like a lot like it's mostly just a hand to hand combat. It's not like they have like any stun gun or collapsible staff. It's just them throwing hands. Right. <laughs> it can be very easy to weaponize those. I mean, we're gonna be reviewing the Civil War next and we all know what happens True. with, I mean, with I guess the truck that we thought was a water truck. Yeah, things it, it can become weapons. Mm -hmm. But the discs itself aren't weapons, aren't yeah. Weapons. They're a, a means to an end. While tinkering with the suit, Scott considers messing with the suit's regulator. Hank warns him sternly that doing so could cause him to go subatomic and enter the quantum realm, where space and time become irrelevant as you shrink for all eternity. We also learn a bit more about the plan to steal the yellow jacket. The room it's in has its own power grid. The controls of that power grid are protected around the clock by a guard. The yellow jacket suit itself is in a hermetically sealed chamber that can only be accessed by a tube with a 5mm diameter that's got a laser grid on the end of it. The laser grid can only be powered down for 15 seconds at a time. Scott will have to signal the ants to blow the power grid, enter the tube, and retrieve the yellow jacket. Despite his growing aptitude with the suit and with his combat training, he still struggles, Scott that is, to communicate with the ants. This leads to another argument between Hope and Hank in which Hope makes a convincing demonstration why she should be wearing the suit instead of Scott. Scott visits Hope privately, and she tells him that when her mother died, and she knows Hank isn't telling her the truth about the circumstances of that death, he became very cold towards her. Scott points out that Hank wants him to wear the suit because he's expendable, i.e. he's trying to protect Hope. He'd rather this whole yellow jacket thing go sideways than lose his daughter, because he loves her. Hope softens her stance regarding Scott, and is able to help him learn to communicate with the ants 
effectively. This scene always makes me so uncomfortable. Scott does a great job of being a third wheel, but every time I see this, I always imagine like being a kid at a friend's sleepover and their mom starts yelling at them. Like it's just, it's so cringy. But also, I mean, it's a really great reminder that this is kind of like a, a good father film. And I think that's funny that we're shooting this this weekend. Happy Father's Day. That's right. Happy Father's Day, everybody. Paul Rudd has, I think, a knack for being able to transition seamlessly between the classic comic actor to the physical comedy to the serious drama. And I think you get a nice demonstration of that in that montage. He's doing all the one-liners, but then he's able to have that serious conversation with Hope. I think it's a testament to Paul Rudd's versatility. He's a great actor. I always forget that he was in one of the earlier Halloween movies. And was he really? Every time I go back and watch that movie, I'm just like, wait what? You're in this? It's so uncanny to see him. Of course, he looks the exact same, though. Yeah, he still looks like, you know, 25. (laughs) When Scott and Hope go back inside, Hank tells them what really happened to Hope's mother. In 1987, Separatists gained control of a Soviet missile silo and launched an ICBM at the United States. Hank and Janet Van Dyne, who had talked Hank into letting her join him on shield missions with her own shrinking suit as the Wasp, were dispatched to disable the missile. But in order to do so, someone would need to shrink down between the molecules of the titanium casing and thus go subatomic. Hank's regulator was damaged, so Janet did it herself. The missile was disabled, but Janet was lost in the quantum realm. Hank spent 10 years studying the quantum realm in an attempt to get her back, but was unsuccessful. He hid the truth from Hope for fear of losing her. So, I mean, technically, the mom is possibly not dead. I mean, I'm putting the cart ahead of the horse here, but here we are in 2021, and we know quite a few many people who have survived the quantum realm. Stay tuned for our review of Ant-Man and the Wasp, coming in early 2022, I think. Scott's training continues, and he becomes more proficient with the suit and with interacting with the ants. The final part of his training involves him breaking into one of Howard Stark's old storage facilities in upstate New York to retrieve an old prototype signal decoy invented by Hank back during his shield days. They need it to counteract the transmission blockers Cross has installed all over the vault housing the Yellow Jacket. Catching a ride on a jet with several specially outfitted flying carpenter ants, including his faithful mount Antony, Scott deploys over his target in upstate New York, only to discover during the drop that that warehouse has since been replaced with the Avengers' new compound, last seen in the end of Age of Ultron. Despite Hanks and Hope's pleas to abort, Scott continues with the mission and lands on the roof of the compound. He's soon spotted by Sam Wilson in his Falcon suit, and the two engage each other. Scott acquits himself well enough in the fight and is able to escape with the signal decoy, as well as his life. Rewatching this makes me feel so old. This fight happened so long ago. He's captain now, and it's crazy. It's almost nostalgic. Well, yeah, there's been so much MCU content. Six years is like an eternity now. It really is. Also, for me, this explains why they say they know each other in Civil War. Because I didn't know why. (laughs) Another puzzle piece filled in for Emily. How about the fact that I fought an Avenger and didn't die? We can debate whether or not it was realistic that Scott beat an Avenger in his first real superhero fight. I still think it's a cool fight, mainly because it's the first opportunity that we get to see the Ant-Man suit in combat. This is what it looks like when someone gets punched by someone the size of an insect who has the proportionate strength of a full-size human being. It was, I think, a nice opportunity to show off Ant-Man's strengths and demonstrate his awesomeness, despite the 
seeming absurdity of the whole idea of a teeny tiny superhero. I also think this is like a really great example of Scott showing how clever he is. Of course, he's being attacked by Sam, but he still has the wherewithal to have the ants steal back the, what was the device name again? The the signal decoy? Yeah, the signal decoy. So I think it goes beyond him just being a a hacker or just your typical kind of cunning thief. But he has this kind of general ability to put together a plan on the fly. And I think that's really cool to showcase. If you're going to be a halfway decent cat burglar, I think you kind of have to be. Cause have to be the, able the, to the, improvise. Not that I know anything about burglarizing houses or multi-billion dollar companies, but sure, I would assume creepy cross appears in hank's living room uninvited and unannounced somehow managing to not see hope and scott there as well he still thinks hope and hank aren't talking to each other he invites hank to the yellow jacket unveiling ceremony hank accepts after cross leaves he calls hope cross does and tells her he's sure hank's gonna try something he tells her he's tripling security installing full body scanners and blocking all exterior vents scott recommends going in through the water main but that will require someone on the inside to decrease the water pressure and hank and Hope will be with Cross that whole time. Despite Hank's great reluctance, Scott's crew, those three wombats, as Hank calls them, are recruited to join the team. I didn't write this down in the notes, but having watched it a second time, I love this scene where Scott shows off the suit and he's like, <laughs> yeah. don't freak out. And they're like, I'm not going to freak out. It's going to be fine. And then they proceed to freak out. Yeah. Daddy, don't get scared. It was so funny. Like, I do think the voiceover drunk history scenes are probably my favorite, but this is like a close third. Seeing Luis run out of the room screaming. Screaming, yeah. It's not too often that you rob a place and they get welcome back. (laughs) He's so good. No, that is a great scene. And so the big heist is underway. Dave is the wheelman in Luis's van. Luis is set up as a security guard in the Pimtech building. Scott shrinks and heads into the water system and is able to enter the building with the ants through the restroom sink. Kurt monitors the water pressure from the van. Luis is able to lower the water pressure into the building, so Scott rides the rapids of the inbound water on a raft of ants. I'm not a big fan of bugs, naturally, I think, but I actually really liked this whole part, like all the teamwork between him and the ants and all the cool effects. I also really like Scott's little team. I know I sort of implied this a minute ago, but I think his team is, for a bunch of burglars and thieves, very adorable. And it's a really good, like, non-powered version of the I do what he does, just slower kind of thing. Because you can <laughs> see, like, in this whole heist situation in the Pimtech building, Louise really proves himself with this whole thing. Like, they all do. Dave and Kurt, they all have something special that they do that, like, Scott wouldn't be successful without them. And so it's like, yeah, okay, they're a bunch of dingbats, but they were sure useful this time. If Dave doesn't steal Paxton's car, that's it. It's the end of the movie right there. Well, and if Luis doesn't take out that guard. That's it. Honestly, it has that Oceans kind of feel to it where they're breaking down the heist and everybody's roles. And they do it in such an effective way. But having the ants play a role in it is great. It's comedy gold. You could call them bit players. Yeah. (laughs) Tiny, (laughs) tiny bit players. (laughs) Hope installs the signal decoy. Hank arrives on schedule but is unexpectedly approached by Paxton and his partner Gale, who are still looking for the fugitive Scott. Knowing that Hank needs to get into the building to make the plan work, Dave steals Paxton's and Gale's car, thus luring them away from Hank. Scott and the ants fry the servers in the building, erasing all backed up data. Cross greets Hank and Hope just as a helicopter bearing Mitchell Carson lands on the roof. He's arrived to broker the sale of the yellow jacket to some friends of his from Hydra, who have also come along. Scott and the 
ants set explosive charges in the particle room. The ants carried them in shrunk, and they were auto-expanded once placed. But the laser grid is still up. Kurt is still working on hacking it from the van, which has been found by Paxton and Gale, who are about to bust in. Kurt disables the grid just as he and Dave are arrested, but then Cross removes the yellow jacket just as Scott breaks into the chamber. He intends to sell the yellow jacket and Ant-Man suits to Hydra, and will be their only supplier of his shrinking particles. What's worse, Cross has also discovered Scott's identity. Guns are drawn, and Cross and his new Hydra pals are about to shoot Hank and Hope, but then Scott uses enlarging discs to break the glass of the chamber. He, Hope, and Scott are able to subdue all the Hydra guys, but Carson escapes with the particles. Cross escapes with the yellow jacket, and Hank gets shot. Luis sets off the alarm to evacuate the building, which draws off Paxton and Gale so Kurt and Dave can get away. <sighs> oh man. Corey Stoll, I just think he's the worst. I mean, I've never seen anything else he's been in, full disclosure. I don't know, I just think he sucks in this movie. I honestly think this film would be more revered than it is if not for him. Uh, MCU movies have this weird reputation for having weak villains. If that's the case, he's got to be the weakest or at least the worst portrayed, in my opinion. There's no nuance showed whatsoever. You picked the wrong side, Hope! Hey, uh, shoot anything that comes out of that vault! So they try to explain it away by saying the particles are messing with his head, but I don't know. I just think it's bad acting. It just, ugh, it just really does it to me every time I see him say stuff like that. I wish that they would expand more on the idea of the particles messing with his mind. It's not like he has shrunk down. I don't know how much interaction he has had with the particles themselves for them to mess with his mind. That's a really good point. He hasn't shrunk down because he didn't know how to at first. And last hmm. I checked, he's not some blob on the floor. So <laughs> I just really wish that we would have seen more of like that stereotypical descent into madness. Mm -hmm. Of course, he, he automatically comes off as this bad guy. But for most of the Marvel movies, there's always this either you see them in their thought process and you kind of develop like a sympathy for them. But I don't get that from him. He comes in and he's automatically kind of an asshole. And then <laughs> he just progressively gets worse. And then they kind of offhandedly say, it's the particles messing with your mind. But it's how? like they just sort of throw that in, you know, almost, oh, we better explain this, so let's just throw that in. Yeah, he's no Eric Killmonger. He's no Vulture. He's no yeah. Loki. Scott leaves the vault and attacks the two guards outside of it, dispatching them easily. But he gets in a little, no pun intended, trouble in the lab as two more guards begin shooting at him relentlessly. Luis, however, takes them by surprise and subdues them. Hank's injury is not as serious as it looks, and he insists he and Hope will be able to escape. He pulls out his keys with what appears to be a toy tank keyring attached. Moments later, a full-size tank bursts out of the Pimtech building. Hold up, hold up. I know we mentioned it earlier when we were telling everybody plays a really important role, but I gotta give my man Luis some credit. He took out like five guards within this whole few minutes of the heist with just one punch. Like he's the real <laughs> one punch man. <laughs> he's just throwing hands and laying haymakers left and right, and he's the one getting this done. And he picks up that big gun and doesn't he, even need it. He doesn't even need the gun. He's just throwing hands the whole time, and I love it. And what I really like is you see how good a guy he is, because he could have left that guard there, knocked out, mm -hmm. but he's like, ah, okay, let me go back. And I feel like all of the characters, or all of the protagonist good guy characters are exceedingly good guy characters. 
Especially in relation to this bad guy who is just telegraphed as being bad guy. Like, I feel like it's very black and white in this movie. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of other movies, they always delve into that little gray area. There isn't really one. Mm -hmm. They try by saying, oh, there are a bunch of ex-cons. What is right and what is wrong? But I feel like they spell out what is good and what is wrong. And, you know, leading lambs to slaughter, murking guys in the bathroom, <laughs> definitely bad. There's something to be said for making a comic book movie be very comic booky. In a lot of ways, this is a very comic booky movie. Sometimes it can be a bad thing. In this case, it's the movie's strength. But like you were saying, this movie is not meant to be a real super serious kind of film. It is what it is, and it does what it sets out to do really well. I feel like that's maybe why I forgive Cross for being the way he is. Because it does play out like a comic book. It gets to the bare bones of what it's trying to convey. And I appreciate that. You're still getting a solid origin story. You're still seeing this dynamic between good and evil. But it doesn't have all the flash and bows and whistles that the other movies have. You know, you don't have to think too much about it, but you can just sit there and enjoy it and still walk away with a sense of fulfillment or a sense of understanding and appreciation. We were talking about palate cleansers. You know, just two months earlier, we watched a city fall from the sky and a sort of an epic catastrophic destruction. And this was such a refreshing departure from that. I'm sure the timing of that was deliberate. And as I said before, certainly not a coincidence that Ant-Man and the Wasp came out right after Infinity War. The, the sequence, like the sequence, a, you, know, you were saying, go ahead. scale of hacking to dropping cities out of the sky. I feel like we're all good. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we can all rest a little easier at night. The whole sequence where Scott leaves the vault might be my favorite of the entire film. The POV effects in this movie are incredible. We've talked about that a bit already. I love it when he shrinks and runs up the guard's gun barrel before beating them up. I adore the scene with him running slow-mo through the scale model of the building while the guards are shooting the crap out of it. It's like a World War II movie where you've got all the shrapnel and stuff blowing up around you and you're running in slow motion. It was very well executed. Isn't this the part of the movie where you said that if you were a superhero, I you could would be never so be stressed out? I would be so stressed out. And you see it when he's running across this little scale model. His arms are up and he's just freaking out. That would be me, and I would shut down. Don't mm. expect me to be a superhero. <laughs> as soon as the world starts exploding around me, I'm going to go cower in a corner somewhere. Like, no, thank you. And that's, and I think, another beauty of the movie, now that you mentioned it, because Scott, of all the heroes we've met so far, he's probably the most rank amateur of everyone. This is, like, completely new to him. We see him, you know, kind of like, ah, I don't know what I'm doing. And, you know, he's learning on the fly. Or on the ant, I suppose Very you could say. Very much so on the fly. It's only been, what, a month? Hey, go save the world. We got you out of prison. Yeah, he was in jail a month earlier. Yeah, here's some ants in a suit. <laughs> Figure go, it out. Go stop all the war. <laughs> Cross flees in a helicopter, but Scott catches up to him with the help of the carpenter ants. The explosives go off and the building implodes. They fight on the helicopter, but in the ensuing chaos... Cross dons the yellow jacket and in his berserker rage kills the pilots and trashes the helicopter. He and Scott inadvertently escape in Cross's briefcase, which lands in a swimming pool in a suburban neighborhood. Emily has heard me say this before, Disintegration by The Cure is one of my favorite albums of all time, so it goes without saying that I appreciate it making an appearance here in this movie. Also, am I the only person who thought it was cool when Cross zapped the lightsabers? <laughs> just something about that effect that was really, really neat, I thought. I mean, I think that whole scene is really funny, like just fighting and 
inside of a suitcase. Yeah. Or a briefcase. Not even a suitcase, thing. a briefcase, even smaller. My favorite, just the suitcase falling into the pool. Family completely caught off guard, and all you hear is like a... Plop. Well, after Cross <laughs> jumps out of the pool, is like a little plop. Again, it's using that physical comedy, and there's nobody there to really do anything physical. It's, there, there it makes me laugh every time. There are lots of great sight gags in the Ant-Man movies. Scott manages to bat Cross into a bug zapper and subdue him, but then Paxton and Gale arrive, tase Scott, and arrest him. Moments later, they get word that Cross has taken Cassie hostage in an attempt to lure Scott in. Scott manages to escape from Paxton's car and enters Maggie's house to confront Cross. They shrink and fight, Scott and the ants versus Cross, amidst Cassie's Thomas the Tank Engine setup in what, ironically, may be one of the most iconic fight scenes in the entire MCU. As great as the shrunk POV effects shot, are the best parts of the sequence are when all this crazy stuff happens and then they cut to cassie's point of view and it's like this quiet little battle with the train set from her perspective just great sight gags with the giant thomas train and the giant ant i think this might be one of the least destructive movies in the mcu so far because we were talking so. about like sokovia and all of this stuff and how this is like a palate cleanser mm-hmm. so i'm trying to keep a list they destroyed the pen building so there's that that poor family's house and Cassie's house. Did they? I don't think they destroyed the family's house. They just dropped No, but into they their made pool. some, they took some windows yep. out. Okay. Like a couple okay. windows and, so like and yeah, there's damage. And the grill. And there's a, ho- there's a hole in Cassie's house, you know. Yeah. So yeah, so like three locations. Very and I mean, minor. as far as we know, most people survived the pen building. Louis got them all out. Yeah. Luis the hero again. So, yeah. so I think this might be the least destructive Marvel movie we've seen. No, I think you're right. That's probably one of the reasons why people enjoyed it so much. It was so refreshing to see something that's not, you know, end of the world. I always think during that fight, of course, it's funny to see the little sight gag and everything, but I always laugh at the idea when the ant becomes giant and like the power trip this ant must be on. <laughs> like, of course, you see it like scared and running out of the house, but he is king but he of ants. He doesn't even stay to help. You'd think that he would still be connected to. No. He's, well, he's to Scott. He has all the power now. He is Ant Man. <laughs> ant, the size ant, of man. Man, 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 ant. <laughs> it's more like. Ooh, it. I'd read that comic. Paxton goes into the house to rescue Cassie, but Cross disarms him and is about to kill both him and Cassie. Scott tries to break into the Yellow Jacket suit, but it's made of titanium and the plating is too tightly assembled. So Scott does what Janet Van Dyne did, what Hank warned him never to do, and messes with his regulator, making him go subatomic so he can enter the Yellow Jacket suit and destroy it from the inside. The Yellow Jacket shrinks uncontrollably, presumably killing Cross. Scott ends up in the Quantum Realm, which looks really trippy, seemingly a foretaste of what we get to see in Doctor Strange the following year, where it looks like he'll be shrinking for all eternity, until he gets the idea to put one of the enlarging discs into the regulator. That brings him back to normal size, where he is greeted warmly by a now-safe Cassie. We've had this action comedy for almost two hours, and then we get this brief interlude of hardcore science fiction. It's like Marvel meets 2001 A Space Odyssey. It was a little jarring at first, but at the same time, I thought it was really cool. It took my breath away when I first saw it. I... I mean, it's like going inside a kaleidoscope. It's so, like you said, it's it's trippy. It's psychedelic. I think it really set up what Marvel can do visually for a movie. I think it's another reason why I really enjoyed watching Doctor Strange. Taking all that time to make those scenes and sequences, it's really time consuming. Props to the artist, but how do you put something that the human mind can't possibly conceive on screen? And I feel like they've really 
translate that well. It always reminds me of in the original script for Raiders of the Lost Ark, when they actually take the lid off the Ark at the end of the movie. There's no real direction there. The script simply says, they remove the cover from the Ark and all hell breaks loose. And that's it. <laughs> they left it up to the folks at ILM to just, okay, well, run wild with it. Come up with something. They do that at Marvel all the time. They really do. I mean, of course, like you see what's happening on screen, but I feel like it's such a guttural kind of what would you feel falling for eternity <laughs> mm-hmm. and we get such a small glimpse of that it's like that gut feeling of oh my god <laughs> what would i do and I, I really appreciate that again this is a comic and it's science fiction it's fiction at its finest and being able to really think about oh, what would the science of this be and you see so many videos breaking it down and oh, wouldn't he be spaghettified or wouldn't the uh-huh. atoms crush him or something and i love seeing fans take the ideas and applying actual science to them that's what makes science fiction so great and i really enjoy seeing comic books and comic book movies playing with that and showing mm-hmm. us all the possibilities that are available for storytelling with marvel being able to sort of cross genres so easily i mean like i said we were watching an action comedy and then we got a science fiction movie for a couple minutes it's it's a great thing Scott recounts what little he remembers of his Quantum Realm experience to Hank and Hope. As he leaves, Hank ponders the possibility of returning Janet from there. He then walks in on Scott and Hope kissing. That night, Scott has dinner with Maggie, Paxton, and Cassie. Grateful for how he protected Cassie and him, Paxton covers for Scott, thus ensuring he won't return to jail. Dinner is interrupted by a call from Luis, who, by way of another one of his hilarious storytelling chains, informs Scott that Sam Wilson is looking for him. And now it's my job to point out the Stanley cameo of the movie, that he's the bartender during Luis's story with the guerrilla journalist girl. And I had forgotten that while I was watching the movie. I was like, where is Stan's cameo? But I hadn't gotten to that part of my rewatch yet. And I had forgotten that it was his appearance was really, really late in this one. And you don't even get to hear him speak. And you get so hyped, even towards the end of the movie. You're like, ah, I found him. Because it's Stan. Back then, you couldn't do the movie without that. In a mid-credits scene... Hank shows Hope an advanced prototype wasp suit that he and Janet were working on before she disappeared, and he offers it to her. In a post-credit scene, Steve Rogers and Sam Wilson have captured Bucky Barnes. Seemingly on their own and unable to contact Tony Stark because of the Accords, Sam tells Cap that he knows a guy. And that is our review of Ant-Man. So, this is the part where we talk about characters and actors, starting with Paul Rudd as Scott Lang slash Ant-Man. I had never been a huge Paul Rudd fan before this movie came out. It may have had less to do with him and more to do with the types of movies he typically stars in. He did a lot of rom-coms and buddy comedies and such. It's not quite my favorite genre, but you know, I- I'd seen Anchorman and I Love You Man and all that. But now... As we've said about other actors in the MCU, I can't imagine anyone else being Scott Lang other than him. We know he can do the funny stuff, and he does it very well, but he presents his humorous side in a very organic and natural sort of way that that doesn't feel forced. He carries a good part of this film, uh, and he does it very effortlessly. I also like that he gives Scott some texture. He's not a complete goofball. He's a burglar who's done hard time, and clearly there's a little bad boy in him too, perhaps sometimes to a fault, but he also loves his daughter very dearly, and he's genuinely concerned about the people around him and in trying to do the right thing, even if it backfires on him a lot. His heart is in the right place despite his flaws, and in that way, that just might make him one of the most human characters in the MCU. I think that I like him better, because for me, of course, I've only seen him in Civil War and in Endgame, and so I think he is kind of a goofball 
in those other movies. It's like, especially in Civil War when he's like, and if I tear myself apart and everybody's like, who is this idiot? <laughs> what? And he does do some of that in this movie, but I think he's way more nuanced in this movie because he has done hard time. He is a criminal. He is also a goofball, but he's also like thoughtful and cares about his friends and cares about other people. Like the fact that he would go talk to Hank and go talk to Hope separately when they're having this sort of like interpersonal family situation. And he he like steps outside of himself to try and be involved as much as he can in a positive way that is a way different character than I think from what we see at least in Civil War he's a little bit more thoughtful in Endgame because he kind of has to be but I think what turned me off from Ant-Man was because of how he acted in Civil War and I was like is this the whole movie like the whole movie is him being like this I don't want to watch it but it wasn't they needed him to play the comic relief role in Civil War because that's a you know it's a pretty heavy movie I've liked Paul Rudd again you're right he's known for being in these like buddy comedies in rom-coms i for sure started tracking him after uh i love you man uh-huh. and that whole slap in the bass scene slap in the, slap in the bass yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but i mean even in that movie you can kind of see he plays this loving and doting kind of fiance a husband character and he has the ability to really play like a caring friend while still being funny so i feel like they did a really smart casting because he doesn't really get too far out of those genres mm-hmm. but I feel like he did a really good job of bringing like a, a realness to Scott Lang to a comic book character especially one that hasn't really been explored on screen before mm-hmm. so to have this kind of caring sensitive funny guy just kind of be himself it, it almost yeah. feels like it translates so well I talked about Scott being sort of the least experienced superhero in perhaps of all the Avengers and you know we get to see him a little bit in Civil War and certainly in Endgame the sort of you know normalness for lack of a better word that he brings to that I think is a real a real asset when he's talking in Endgame when he shows up at the Avengers mansion he's kind of like you know before all of this before he's kind of called Thanos, you know, because it's like, I was a cat burglar and now I'm talking about supernatural beings that can end the universe. It's just, he's like, he's so out of his element and he knows it. It's like, I was getting fired from Baskin Robbins. Now I'm fighting aliens. Fighting aliens. Yeah, exactly. Like even we talk about this movie being like an outlier and a palate cleanser again, it kind of shows how much of a fish out of the water Mm -hmm. he is in the MCU. So whenever he does show up, I, I get like a genuine kind of oh yeah it's just some guy yeah. he just kind of stumbled into this war scene let's talk about evangeline lily as hope van dyne i like evangeline lily a lot naturally i remember her from lost what little i saw of that show and i thought she was terrific in that it was one of her first acting gigs if i'm not mistaken and truth be told i really liked her in the hobbit movies regardless of what anyone else thinks of those films themselves and i like her in ant-man but i can't say that i love her in this role and i sorely wish that i could i really want to be able to say that I love her in this role but as an actor I think she has excellent range and ability but I don't think she gets to exercise those as fully as I think she could in this film and for most of the film it feels like we only get to see a couple sides to her we get to see angry hope and irritated hope she does those well but I feel like we could be seeing so much more of her and we just don't in this particular movie with that particular haircut Evangeline Lilly looks exactly like one of those double hitter season finale baddies from Criminal Minds so pretty much this entire movie I couldn't shake the feeling that she was actually bad and I know she's supposed to have that vibe at the beginning 
before you realize that she's trying to double cross cross. But also I gotta say, I didn't realize that the hope from Endgame who shows up in the final fight is the same hope that's here because she looks so vastly different to me for some reason. Oh, that's right, because she's got the ponytail and... Uh... She's got the ponytail. Ponytail and Endgame. She's yeah. in the suit. I don't know what it is that my brain can't piece the two of them together. So we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, and it kind of goes over into Darren Cross's character too, especially with her hair, especially in the later movies. You kind of see that double agent kind of spy because of her hair. Whenever she's around Darren or whenever she's playing this character, her hair is very straight. But when she's in this training montage or when she's at home, it's like always curly it's fluffier and it's like okay this adds an air of you being who I think is you who or who you want to be or you feel more in your element or you're getting closer to being the wasp or being the hero and you see that I mean when she gets her longer hair she's the wasp in the final movie I think it's just really interesting to see how effective character design character costuming really plays in selling a character visually seeing her in that i think i called it a very aggressive bob that's I mean, about it right plays up this evil vibe and i love how you kind of like see these glimpses like oh she's not really who she's playing to be and then you kind of feel happier for her in these later movies where it's like all right you're a hero and i i can empathize with you and i feel more emotionally open to your problems and your family issues and i'm not off put by your aggressive bob. <laughs> <laughs> Corey Stoll as Darren Cross slash Yellow Jacket. I don't know if it's because of how he was directed or if he made conscious choices regarding how to play this role or if he's just a bad actor to begin with, but I think Corey Stoll's Darren Cross, I just think it's awful. There's no nuance. There's no compelling motivations behind his actions. Like I said before, I'm still not buying the whole the particles make him crazy argument. I look at someone like Willem Dafoe as Norman Osborn in that first uh, Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movie. I mean, his character was driven crazy by his own creation and, you know, he was still a certified nut job of a bad guy. And yet that performance by Willem Dafoe was just so great to watch. There are ways to chew up the scenery and then there are ways to chew up the scenery. <laughs> and it was interesting and it was genuinely scary. And Stoll just kind of comes across as cartoonish to me. Uh, he reminds me a little bit of Patrick Wilson in the Aquaman movie. He might actually be worse. <laughs> and that's saying something because I think Patrick Wilson was pretty bad in Aquaman. Again, I've already thrown Corey Stoll under the bus enough. I will stop. <laughs> Cherokee, what you said is right about like the show not tell where he is like telling on himself the whole time like our least favorite line in the movie when we watched it today was when he goes into cassie's room and cassie's like i want my daddy and cross goes i want your daddy too and it's like excuse me ew <laughs> Ew, sir. For me in this movie, either a line was not memorable or it was good memorable. Except for anything that Darren Cross said in that last fight. It's a little cringe. It makes me laugh because it makes me cringe. He (laughs) says it so seriously. I will say we do get two really good agonized bad guy screams. And you, Mm. you do bring that up. But kind of piggybacking off of what I was saying with hope in showing not telling Emily mentioned earlier in an earlier scene about how his suit doesn't match how he has pinstripes polka dots and it's like no no that's so off-putting already and and like maybe and that I was already the point, feel uncomfortable but I don't think you. it was 
I don't think it's intentional, but maybe it's super intentional because I feel like so much of this movie is showing, not telling. Mm -hmm. And so much goes into the production of these movies. We see it in like Black Panther and the detail that they put into the clothing that everybody's wearing mm -hmm. and making sure that it's appropriate and it conveys a message. And I feel like we get that in Ant-Man too. I mean, in a smaller degree, like you see it with Luis. He has these great button-up shirts, very cool, very classy. And then you see him cut to all these like high-end, classy, fun vibes. And you get that from his clothing. You see Scott in his flannel shirts and, and button-downs and his burglar gear. And it's like, okay, he's just a fun-loving guy. So seeing Darren Cross and his stripes and polka dots <laughs> and his uber bad guy coat when he's in the <laughs> Hank Pym's house. Oh, yeah. yeah. The, the, the really it's just like, oh, off, man, if you're not a really, bad guy, I don't know really, what you are. The, the leather jacket with that just looks like it's cut really badly. Just all over the place. Like, and I feel like it is intentional. Borrowed from the Russian um, mafia. Yeah. So many pockets. Unnecessary belts. <laughs> it's a lot. So I feel like it's it's more intentional than it's meant to be. And I feel like it does help with developing these characters without them telegraphing too much. That's my problem with this movie. Is when they do telegraph or when they do speak. It's just so blatant. And I think that's what makes Darren Cross so bad is he is the one doing most of that blatant talking. It's like, <laughs> I need you to dial that back. You're out of 10. I need you out of 7. So we'll move on to Michael Douglas as Hank Pym. I've stated in previous episodes of the show that Michael Douglas is my favorite of all the, the veteran actor appearances in MCU films. Unlike a lot of the other veteran actors in the MCU, I think he's probably got more screen time than any of them. You know, more than Jeff Bridges, more than Robert Redford, more than Tommy Lee Jones, Annette Benning. Maybe not quite as much as, say, you know, Kurt Russell later on in Guardians 2, but his role in the movie is pivotal. He helps drive the plot, of course, by recruiting Scott and mentoring him. He also has a major character arc involving his conflict with his daughter and his eventual reconciliation with her. And like all the other veteran actors in the MCU, he just makes it look so easy. And I'm sure that comes with experience. I'm old enough to remember watching Michael Douglas, you know, in Romancing the Stone, Fatal Attraction, Black Rain, Wall Street, A Chorus Line. I even remember watching reruns of The Streets of San Francisco. He's a tremendous actor. I think the gravitas that he brings to this picture is just a gift. Honestly, the de-aging that they'd used in this movie, it was good, I thought. Me, personally, I didn't, it, out of all of the de-aging that we've seen in movies, mm -hmm. this is probably one of the better examples of it. I agree, yeah. Is it perfect? No, because you can still sort of tell, but it's, it's not like Tarkin in Rogue One or Jeff Bridges in Tron Legacy. And I really like the direction they took by having like an older Hank Pym training Scott Lang. Especially when you read the comics, you get so involved in each character because they're there. They have fairly long runs for each character. So it's like either your Ant-Man is Scott Lang or your Ant-Man is Hank Pym. Mm-hmm. So to see is like, we get both. We get both in one movie and we see how they interact with each other. We see one train the other and we get this whole backstory, this whole kind of... Well, kind of like Legacy. Yeah, like an Ant-Man Legacy in one two-hour movie. And I really like the direction that they take. But again, I like a lot of the directions that the MCU takes. Well, and this is really the first time I think we've seen like a mantle being passed at this mm -hmm. point in at the point, universe. Yeah. 
We've obviously seen it now. Some of our listeners who may not be quite as well versed in Marvel Comics, Ant-Man and the Wasp are founding members of the Avengers in the comics. <laughs> so yep. in terms of Marvel Comics history, they're immensely important. They were there at the beginning. So they found a way to work sort of very briefly a young Hank Pym that you would have seen in the comics, bring him in as that father figure, the mentor figure for Scott Lang, who shows up much later on down the line. A very clever way to sort of have your cake and eat it too. Marvel does that a lot. <laughs> Michael Pena as Luis, Tip T.I. Harris as Dave, and David Desmalchian as Kurt. I think all three of these guys are funny, but it's kind of hard to not single out Michael Pena here. He's just too damn funny, and his timing is just too damn good. I was doing some research, and I found um, this article from Entertainment Weekly. It was on the Wikipedia entry for the movie, and it says, and I'm quoting, Pena stated that he modeled Luis's vocal style and positive outlook on life on a friend of a friend, saying, that's just the way he talks and the cadence. He's got this grin on the entire time, and he doesn't care. He's the kind of guy where you're like, Hey, what'd you do this weekend? And he's like, I went to jail, dog, with a smile on his face. <laughs> Not a lot of people do that. Not a lot of people think of life on those terms. And it's so true when Louise picks up Scott from San Quentin and he's like, you know, yeah, my girlfriend left me and my mom died and my dad got deported, but I got the van. <laughs> it's just gives you the bright side of everything. How- this is based on a friend of a friend. Like, of course yes. it would. In the context of this movie. It's like, I got a friend who's got a friend. Right, because that's exactly what Luis does. That's exactly that what Luis would do. A cousin or friend or a girlfriend. And it's like, of course, of course, this character is based off of a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend. I also love Kurt. I do like Kurt. I think he might be my favorite. I feel like there's something extra smart about Kurt because he's sort of like the techie guy. Yeah. yeah. Like, even though Scott is the masters in engineering kurt is like what do they call it in spider-man the guy in the, the chair. guy in the chair oh, yeah. <laughs> kurt, kurt is the guy in the chair even though scott is supposed to be this like genius one but i love how like even though they're criminals and you want to think they're bad they're like the least toxic masculinity friend group that i've seen so far <laughs> like they're just so nice and open with each other Luis was there making waffles for them. Waffles. <laughs> Anytime any of them said something that was like smart or good, Dave would be like, yeah, man, you're right. Encouraging <laughs> them and like going for it. I thought that was so Such cute. positive friendship. Good role models. <laughs> yeah. All of these ex-cons. Okay. I know T.I., he's gotten some slack these last couple years, but I go back to one of his first acting roles in ATL and he blew me away then. And I know that ever since I've known he has acting chops so when he was in this movie i was like what they got ti hell yeah i'm gonna go watch it because <laughs> he sold me on in atl so i'm like yes i gotta watch this movie and he doesn't have too many lines but the lines that he does have they're quick they're funny he does this great kind of back and forth and honestly it doesn't go so far as to be the three stooges but they are appropriately named three wombats they played off of each other <laughs> very well michael pena steals the scene but i feel like my second favorite of the three wombats would be ti if marvel ever got back to doing like the little shorts they did that they put on like the DVD and Blu-ray releases of the earlier movies that are sort of separate stories. These three guys would be perfect for one of those. You could do just a quick little story with Louise, Dave, and Kurt, and I would totally watch that. If anyone at Marvel is listening. Like not a director's cut, but like a fun little like short or even even like a start screen buttons 
Just a fun little thing with that. Bobby Cannavale is Jim Paxton. He's kind of there to be sort of a foil. I don't have much to say about him. I mean, he does his job well, but (laughs) I don't have anything else to say. Similar to how I can't unsee certain actors in other positions, he was in the rebooted Annie with Quavenjane Wallace. He was the sleazy guy that pairs up with Hannigan, if you know any of your Annie lore. Yeah. He's the sleazy guy who pairs up with Hannigan to try and sell the kid. And his name is Guy in the movie. I feel like he just gets labeled as Guy in this movie, too. He is Guy in this movie also. It's it's that guy. The guy that Maggie's with? Yeah. That guy. That guy. I don't think he does a bad job, though. I will say this police department, they need to work on their response time. (laughs) Also, because his partner, and I don't know the actual actor's name, but he was Julius in Remember the Titans. And he has a very expressive face. And you can see it in this one where he's like intently listening. You can see that he got a direction and he did that direction. And he was like, okay, I'm going to listen. Oh, I'm going to be scared of the giant ant. I'm going to do that. Like you just (laughs) hit all of his points. I imagine if there was like a a subtitled version of the movie, it's just listens aggressively or listens intently. Because like you can see it on his face. Like he's an inch away. Like say it. What'd you say? Hmm. I'm here. (laughs) It's really funny. But yeah, I, I need the SWAT team in this movie to be a little bit more on. It. Cassie was already sitting in her bed and Jim was comforting her and everything. And then they go upstairs. Yeah. Well, Scott was able to fall through the quantum realm, come back, hug his daughter, and then the SWAT team shows up. You could make the argument that they were busy responding to the recently imploded Pimtech building. Maybe they, they were it's all not there. Like they didn't have. They had that great back it up scene. And there were at least <laughs> yes. like five there were a lot of cars cops there. out there. There were a lot of cars uh, there, But I yeah. guess, you know, seeing a Thomas the Tank Engine explode <laughs> through the roof of a house would be like, okay, let's regroup. There's something about the back it up thing that I thought was, it's like so short. It and it's just, you know, back it up. <laughs> Bag it up. Bag it up, yeah. Bag it up. Bag it up, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Whenever I put my car in reverse, I, I automatically think, bag it up. It's in there now. It's in my brain. It won't go away. Judy Greer is Maggie. Uh, you know, we don't see a whole lot of her. I've seen Judy Greer in a couple other things. Well, I know uh, she's in the, the latest Halloween. I think she did a great job, but she does have a couple scenes in it where she's like very deadpan. And mm-hmm. I feel like that speaks to her trauma as a character in that movie. This movie, I feel like she doesn't overact. In like the sense that she's overacting, like her movements are big or her expressions. But I feel like a character, she overreacts to some of the silliest things again your daughter is hostage in a room and i feel like you would be trying to do more to get in there but when she's there she's like oh you're here what are you doing and it's like i've seen her do really good acting she is a great actress i don't feel like this is her strongest performance she was clearly there to just sort of be in a support role that's not very big and not have a whole lot of lines so it's kind of hard to evaluate a performance based on that little screen time Archer. That's Archer, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Which I've and never seen, so but I but I but I know she No, I yeah. Because she plays one of the most like over the top characters in that show. She can go from side character, quiet, reserved to cartoony, brash, loud kind of acting really well. So I don't know. I don't feel like this was a bad casting, but it's not one of my favorite performances of hers. Mm-hmm. Anthony Mackie as Sam Wilson, a.k.a. The Falcon. Not a whole lot of screen time in this movie, but obviously it was a very important scene in the movie, his fight with Ant-Man. You know, it's Mackie. It's Mackie being Mackie. 
it's Mackie B and Sam, you know, cut the check. <laughs> I like that fight. The few lines that he delivered, he was very funny. The what is he says? Don't tell Cap about this. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Abby Ryder Fortson as Cassie. We don't talk about child actors a lot on this show, but I, I really liked her. I really thought she made an adorable, funny Cassie. The gift at the party. He's so ugly. I love him. <laughs> I love that line. I thought she was better in this movie than, than Corey Stoll was as Taryn Cross. I will go so far as to say that. Well, I would sure hope so. I think they probably got her from the same kid casting agency they got Morgan from in Endgame. They give oh, off yeah. a similar vibe. Well, they're oh, both funny. Know. Like, they're both great. I think I like Cassie more. Her little, like, gap tooth smile and lisp. It really sells, like, <laughs> innocent girl who's just happy to see her dad. The fact that she's so pleased with this demonic-looking rabbit doll <laughs> is just precious. Uh, what was that scene where she's, like, at the table? He's like, are you looking for my dad? I hope, hope you, you never find catch him. Hope you, don't, hope you don't catch him, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but she like leans back and she's like all defiant. And I'm like, she's a little kid, but she's so expressive. And I think it's great. She dials it up just enough, just enough to be funny and not so much that it's annoying. That's really hard to do, especially if you're a kid. I like to talk about music scores, and I totally forgot to write anything about Christoph Beck's score. Again, I wish I could hum it, but, you know, we don't want to get slapped with a uh, with a cease and desist letter from the folks at Disney or uh, at ASCAP. But I love the Ant-Man theme, because it's got that very appropriate heist sort of uh, feel to it. Christoph Beck, he's written a lot of stuff for Marvel. I think he did the music for both seasons of the Agent Carter show. I think he did the instrumental stuff for WandaVision. He's become very prolific in the MCU, and I, I thought this was a really good film score. I love some of the other stuff that they play. You know, we already talked about uh, disintegration making its appearance later in the movie. Opening up the San Quentin scene with Borombom, I thought was really, really great. The one scene where Darren Cross is in Cassie's room. We're thinking of the same thing. Yeah. yeah. And we just get some primo bad guy violins come in. Really sets the tone for like, okay, this is the, the serious moment. Oh, he's going full bad guy. He's threatening <laughs> I love when you get those eerie... Everything else silences out and all you get is a good violin bass kind of, oh, it stops and it gives you chills to go from such a lighthearted action comedy, wistful sound throughout the movie, something that's going to keep you up, something that's going to keep you happy and then cut to that. It really, it really speaks to how well this movie was scored. So there you have it, our review of Ant-Man. Cherokee, thank you so much for joining us this evening. I had a hell of a lot of fun having you on the show. Thank you for being here tonight. That was great. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. I'm super excited to be here. We got to have you back now. We got to start yeah, thinking about that. I could honestly that. talk for hours about these movies, the books, the characters. It's so much fun to be able to like theorize about all these things that are coming out, the things that are currently out, and then to, to just do a deep dive. I mean, we, we've worked in bookstores we've had to explain characters to customers on the fly you know and we're pretty good at being able to not just condense things out but tease some of those further plot points so it's, it's fun to be able to do that with friends i had a fantastic time it was really good to have you on board this was great everyone listening at home thank you for joining us as always uh, emily and i will be returning in a few more weeks with our review of captain america civil war so stay tuned for that until then have a good night everybody and thanks for listening we'll see you around see you later bye